Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. can't get no satisfaction listening to anything but the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Rolling Stones for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I am John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Um, before we get rolling, you are invited to join our Facebook group. Just get on Facebook, search Stick to Wrestling, and you're in, or I will let you in. It's it's a cool group. If you're you know if you want to check it out, you're more than invited. We don't just stick to wrestling. I think there's going to be a lot of college football talk over the next few days, and a lot of good wrestling talk. I mean, we're talking about best brother tag teams, best families in wrestling, etc. So if you're into that, join up. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the stick to wrestling logo as his avatar. And with that. I want to welcome popular former guest and current guest making his number two appearance on Stick to Wrestling, Jake the Valentine Hammer. Jake, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, John. That's awesome. The Valentine Hammer. Love me some old school Greg Valentine, man. Back in the day, he was the, he was the bomb. But around 1987, his uh, work kind of uh, uh, dropped off a little bit. I was disappointed in that. Jake, you and I agree. I will tell people that around 1988, 1989, Greg Valentine became one of the worst in-ring performers in the game. And I'm aware of all the bad in-ring performers we had in 1989. And yeah, Valentine fit right in and he just coasted on his reputation. And I, and a lot of people just went, whoa, no, no way. Yeah, way. Craig, Craig started mailing it in right around the time he started teaming with Dino Bravo. Yeah, that was not a very good tag team. Hopefully, we will not talk about that tag team today. <laughs> no, this show is about the Jake. I wanted Jake on the show, and I'm like Jake, bounce some ideas off me, and he's like, "Well, the '80s were such a great time for for tag team wrestling in the United States," and I didn't even realize it at the time. I was like, "Okay, well, this is where we are now." But we had great tag teams, and I didn't want to just do the 80s or the mid to late 80s. I wanted to focus a little more. So Jake and I are going to do the top 10 tag teams of 1987. Jake, I can tell you that I had a really hard time getting it down to 10. There were some tag teams out there that were excellent, and I can only pick 10 of them, and it was, it was not easy for me. Me too. Like you gave me this assignment a couple of days ago and all weekend I was thinking, gosh, who am I going to leave out? Who am I going to put in? Man, if you go back and look at the tag team roster, especially in the WWF in like 19 from 1986 to like 1989, they had the greatest roster of tag teams like quantity wise. I mean, other than a few teams, like most of them could be worthy of tag team title contention. I mean, like anytime you had the Rougeau brothers or the Killer Bees or the Rockers or Hart Foundation, British Bulldogs, it was incredible. NWA had some really good tag teams and they're on my list too, but 
WWF kind of had the NWA beat when it came to the most tag teams, the most quality tag teams. Would you agree or disagree? Uh, most quality tag teams, yes, because they had they simply had more teams than the NWA. But I, in my opinion, and we'll see this, the absolute top of the top of the game were the NWA guys. Jake, who was the hardest tag team for you to leave off? Man, that's a good question. Probably the Rougeo brothers, because the Rougeo brothers, I, I don't think they get talked about enough. They were a really good tag team. Like, I never saw Jacques and Raymond have a bad match. Like, their TV matches were great. They they had some matches with Beefcake and Valentine. And, and granted, Brutus Beefcake, not the greatest worker in the world, but the Rougeos carried Beefcake and Valentine to some good matches. I especially like the Rougeos when they turned heel in 88. When they, when they, so that started when they were wrestling the Killer Bees on Superstars and they started doing heel tactics and the, to win the match. And then they started acting all disingenuous with the uh, American flags and all that. That was great. And then they got... Dude, the Rougeau brothers, Jacques Rougeau is one of the most underrated stars in wrestling history. Like, granted, the Mountie was kind of a cartoon character, but he did really well in that role. And Ray Rougeau was pretty good as well. I mean, they made for an interesting tag team. I preferred them as heels more than baby faces. I actually saw some Jacques Rougeau uh, from Memphis in 1982 doing a heel gimmick where he came out with the uh, boombox at Dirty Laundry by Don Henley. The crowd hated him. Jacques Rougeau should have never been a babyface because the guy could get heel heat like that. But in 87, they were still babyfaces. I thought they were a pretty good tag team, but they're off my list. You took the words out of my mouth. As soon as you started talking about Jacques Rougeau, I was going to jump in with the 1982 Memphis thing. And say, how did they? How did this guy not make it huge as a heel in the U.S.? But the, the cards weren't aligned. Now I bagged on Greg Valentine a little bit. Uh, you bagged on Brutus Beefcake a little bit. I really think that is the most underrated tag team, maybe of all time. I mean, Valentine was still, you know, was still a good wrestler. Beefcake at least knew what he was doing. And I mean, I, I have seen too many good Valentine and Beefcake matches against various opponents where, I mean, and everyone's like, oh, my God, they suck. No, that was a good tag team. They were broken up by the by the by April of, uh, or May of 1987. So I don't have them, but they were really good. I didn't say they were like a bad tag team. It's just they weren't my favorite tag team to watch. Brutus Beefcake was okay. A lot of people rag on him for being, you know, Hulk Hogan's buddy, and that's the only push. Beefcake, you know, he carried his own sometimes. He just wasn't my favorite. Greg Valentine, I like his work from Mid-Atlantic and WWF in the early 80s, and especially when he did that angle with Tito Santana where he broke his leg. That was incredible. That was good stuff. But, you know... The Dream Team, they're not on my list of underrated tag teams. i got to go with the Rougeos. I, I can definitely see the Rougeos. And to make up for what I said about Craig Valentine, I mean, I thought he was going to be WWF champion in 1981, and I wanted it so badly. And I thought, you know, this guy, I think he absolutely could have been the WWF champion, you know, doing what superstar Billy Graham did for for 10 months or whatever it was. One of my prop, maybe my favorite tag team of 1987 got left off. And here's how, here's the criteria 
I use, okay? It's based on a combination of in-ring ability. You know, did they get pushed in a major promotion? Yes, that counts. Did they have charisma and longevity? Like, were they together all year? Were they together for eight months? Were they together for just a short amount of time? Probably my favorite tag team of 1987 was Austin Idol and Tommy Rich. And I couldn't even consider them for the for the list because, in reality, they were together for a short time. And it was more of a faction with Paulie Dangerously than an actual tag team. But I think they were my favorite tag team. Dude, that angle they did in Memphis where they cut Lawler's hair. Uh-huh. My goodness. They had cojones of steel because the crowd wanted to kill those guys. Tommy Rich, I always thought was a better heel than a baby face. I think he just came across better as a heel. I mean, he, he was good as a baby face, but... Man, when he would be a heel at like 1980 Memphis, he was really good in that role. And then in 87, you know, he started slowly turning heel in that feud with Lawler. Man, you, you, you're right, John. Like uh, Rich and uh, Idol, they were money, man. And they weren't together that long. They were only for the big money matches, but they made an impact. And Austin Idol, I don't think it's talked enough. This guy could really talk people into the building. He kind of wrestled like superstar Billy Graham a little bit. His work wasn't the greatest, but he had the gift of gab and the charisma. I always wondered why he never went to the WWF. He just kind of stayed in the Southern territories. I think he, I don't think he wanted to go to the WWF. A lot of guys say, Oh, I like to stay close to home. And I don't believe them in idols case. I believe it. And plus he was, he really was a little bit too, much like superstar Billy Graham, although I think they could have brought him in in, in 80 and 80 or 81, and he would have been a big star. He would have been a great challenger for Bob Backlund, no question about it. Like, you could see the Grand Wizard managing him. <laughs> I mean, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, I, I you know, was I don't want to say I was waiting for Idol to come in, but I was thinking Idol and Wizard would be really good together. But anyway, all right, Jake, who was your number 10 tag team of 1987? I wish I could put these guys like higher on my list, but they were like in and out of the AWA. And that was the Midnight Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. They were the AWA tag team champions. They beat Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. Great matches. I remember watching those as a kid. Like these are incredible. And credit also to Buddy Rose and Doug Summers for being an excellent tag team combination. But like the Rockers, they went to the WWF for that short time in like summer of 87. Uh, Marty Jannetty got in that uh, scuffle with uh, Jimmy Jack Funk or something like that. And the guys kind of talked crap about him, so they got fired. Then they went to uh, Continental, I think, for the Fullers, and that didn't last long. Then they went back to Memphis. Have you seen the Midnight Rockers in Memphis as heels? Like, Shawn Michaels should have never been a babyface. Like, even in, like, 1987-88, this guy was just oozing heel and Janetti was good as well if if they were in the AWA more and I could see them more I would put them higher on my list where where would you rank the Midnight Rockers John well I have a lot to say here first of all I did see them in Memphis in 1988 and I was like what is the world doing not using these guys as heels I had the Midnight Rockers at number six um, I thought they were that good they were fantastic in the ring But even in 1986, 1987, I was openly wondering, Jake, 
okay, does anyone in the NWA watch AWA wrestling? And if they do, why are they not looking at these two guys and saying, hey, bring them into the NWA as heels to feud with the Rock and Roll Express? Call them something kinda like, like good. Kind of like the Midnights versus Midnights a year before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would have had them go, you know, give them some goofy name like the Rock and Roll Patrol and have them come out and say, you know, the Rock and Roll Express stole our gimmick. And Tony Schiavone would look and say, "Uh, the Rock and Roll Express were formed in 1983. And Michael's, oh, yeah, we started in 1982. And Schiavone could be like, "Uh, Sean, you were 16 years old in 1982. Oh, I don't get (laughs) dates right all the time, but they stole our gimmick. I mean, it it would have just been perfect, and, and they no one got around to it, and that's a little bit frustrating. But we all know how great they were in the ring, even in the AWA. If you saw them in the WWF, you know you you knew that these guys were great. And yeah, and then you finally see Shawn Michaels as a heel, first in 1988, but then full time in 1991. And I, I always felt like Shawn had it in him to do that. And in a weird way, Sean was just kind of being himself and it worked. Dude, he was a heel through and through. And last time on the on the program, I was talking about how much I didn't like Shawn Michaels in the mid 90s. But, man, you got to give his due. I mean, he was one of the most incredible performers of the late 80s and 90s. Janetti was really good, too. Unfortunately for Marty, he let his uh, out of the ring curricular activities get him in trouble a lot of times, but I thought Janetti was a heck of a hand too. I thought he did a really good job and carried his own uh, midnight rockers. Yeah, they're, they're on my list. I wish they were a little higher, but I couldn't do it. Cause I, I didn't see Memphis in 1987 or continental. I only saw AWA and they were in and out. So that kind of clouds my judgment a little bit. Okay. No, they were, they were mostly in the AWA. I mean, they lasted, I think they lasted one night in the WWF, to be honest with you. It was right around the time that the WWF was introducing drug testing to the wrestlers and guys were getting suspended. And the quote I remember was the Midnight Rock or the Rockers were out there, you know, doing stuff in the dressing room that they were specifically told not to do. And they lasted one day in the WWF. Thankfully for them, they got another chance a year later and and made the most of it. They were probably the greatest team to never hold the WWF Tag Team Championship. I know they won it on a Saturday night's main event in like 90, but the ring broke, but that wasn't counted. So they have to be considered the greatest tag team to never hold. Maybe Adonis and Ventura, too, in 82, to never hold the tag team title. I would go the Rockers way over Adonis and Ventura um, because, I mean, Adonis and Ventura... They had the star power as being like, you know, top contenders for Bob Backlund and Jesse Ventura could talk. And I will go to my grave saying, and Adrian Adonis could talk too, but Jesse was just awful in the ring, man. That guy was a millstone. Yeah, that's true. But Adrian, you know, he made up for it, man. He was a bumping machine. Like his work from like 1980 to like 1985, he was as good as Ric Flair. Like, you could put him right up there. I was looking at some old Wrestling Observer stuff online, and Dave had uh, Adrian Adonis pretty high back then. And I got to agree, man. He had some really good matches. He could probably make Ivan Putzky look like Luthez out there. Jake, you beat me to it once again. I went to the Boston Garden in 1982. 
and saw a match between Adrian Adonis and not Ivan Putski, even better, post-broken leg Andre the Giant, who was you know quickly gaining weight, and Adonis right. made it a good match. He just flew around the ring the whole time as Andre stood there, and the fans loved it. They got to see Adrian Adonis get his butt kicked by an immobile Andre the Giant. It was it was the last match on the card, and I think it was the last match of Adrian's run in 81-82. And I, I mean, I've been on this show in 1982. Adrian Adonis may have been the best wrestler in the world, and I am aware that the world includes Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair, Tatsumi Fujinami, etc. You know, Adrian, one of the first pay-per-views I ever got was WrestleMania 2. And, okay, Uncle Elmer versus Adrian Adonis is not a match you would think would be a good match. And it kind of wasn't. But Adrian flew all over the ring for Plowboy, or Uncle, I was going to say Plowboy Frazier, but Uncle Elmer at that time. He made the match enjoyable. Like, he was doing flips over the top rope and everything. He knew that he had a tough row to hoe against Uncle Elmer, and he he took advantage of it. Adrian was great, man. He really was, and, you know, I've said it before, it's sad what happened to him, not only on a human level, the guy had a family, but he had an agreement to go back, to go to JCP with the leather jacket gimmick uh, at the time he died. He did a tour of Japan. I saw some of his matches. His weight was not completely out of control anymore. And I would have loved to see that alternative universe where Adrian Adonis goes to Crockett in 88. But obviously that didn't happen. He, a little factoid, Adrian was from my adopted hometown of Baker, or he, it was his adopted hometown of Bakersfield, California. Also living in Bakersfield was Bobby Davis, the manager of uh, Playboy or uh, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. Wow, I had no idea Bobby Davis was out there. I'll say one more thing about Adrian Adonis. I, I think I've said it on the show before, but you know, I read about him in the magazines, and he comes to the WWF in 1981. And as soon the first time I heard him talk, I'm like, okay, yeah, this guy's from New York, sure. No, I think he was from Buffalo or something like that, but he moved out to Bakersfield in the 80s. Uh, unfortunate what happened to him because he was, even when he was doing the um, cross-dresser gimmick, you could tell he could still bump in the ring. I mean, at WrestleMania 3, he took some pretty heavy bumps for a 300-plus pounder. I mean, he made that match pretty interesting. I mean, in 87 and 88, he was in the AWA, and I mean, if you... If you haven't seen this, ladies and gentlemen, if you thought Adrian Adonis was heavy in the WWF in 86 and 87, you should have seen him in the AWA. I mean, he was Crusher Blackwell heavy, and he could still bump and and do the whole thing. But back to 87 tag teams, I had at number 10, Demolition. And it was hard because there were so many other good tag teams I wanted to squeeze in there, but they were the last one. Good working tag team, and people thought, oh, look, the the Road Warriors have come to the WWF. It was a a fresh look, an interesting gimmick. I saw right away that it was Barry Darso uh, uh, when he arrived, uh, replacing uh, Moondog Rex. But I was like, okay, Crusher Crucia is now in the WWF. But they get my number 10. I thought they were, again, a charismatic tag team, uh, good gimmick, and they were good in the ring. 
Absolutely. Demolition was great. Uh, good brawling team. I think when I first took notice of Demolition, so they were on Superstars Wrestling in like late 87, and they wrestled Scott Casey and Brady Boone, who was the kayfabe cousin of Billy Jack Haynes. And they kept doing their finishing move on Brady Boone, and they made it seem like he broke his neck and they ended his career. And that really stuck with me. I'm like, this team is pretty cool. And by, like, spring of 88, they took the belts from uh, Tito and Rick and really became one of the best tag teams in WWF history. But I just keep in my mind, when I think of Demolition, it's them, like, just destroying Brady Boone on TV. And then Ken Patera and Billy Jack Haynes come out and make the save, and then they get their butts kicked. So Demolition looked really dominating. I think Billy Jack had a little bit of a push before that, and and I love Ken Patera, but at that time he was kind of not. He had seen his best days, uh, and unfortunately he was in prison for two years for that McDonald's incident. But man, they really put the guns to demolition, and they just took off running. Man, they did. You know, we'll talk a little bit about about Ken Patera in '87. I mean, they they brought him in. They gave him they gave him so much TV time for that push. And even at the time, I'm like, Vince, do you see what you have in front of you? This guy is obviously best in his early 40s, probably not, and he just doesn't look the part. And there was talk in 87 that they were going to turn Ken Patera against Hogan, and that was your WrestleMania 4 main event. And I was like, okay, Vince, do you not see Ken Patera right now? He, I love Ken Pateri. He's one of my all-time favorites. I love his shoot interviews. My Lord, that dude is hilarious, and he's very politically incorrect. <laughs> However, 1987 Ken Patera was hard to watch because I, as a fan and not a smart fan, I wanted to root for him because he had just gotten out of jail. The fans were behind him originally in his feud against the Heenan family, but unfortunately, those two years in prison really took away a lot of his ability, I think. Like, he wasn't the Ken Patera of 1980 or 1981 in Georgia or even the AWA. He had a good tag team in the AWA with Jerry Blackwell as the Sheiks, but, like, 1987 Ken Patera, it was hard to watch, man. I, I wanted to root for him so bad, but his matches were just not that great. No, and, and he was shot physically, you're right. And again, you know, part of it is, hey, you know, at some point, every professional athlete, you know, hits the wall with the Tom Brady exception, obviously. But all right, Jake, who do you have as number nine? I got on this list um, the Islanders, Haku and Tama. Now, my number nine. They they were okay as baby faces. The fans, I don't think, really cared about them as baby faces. I did see some of their early matches on '86 on Superstars of Wrestling. Tama, man, that dude was a heck of a wrestler. And Haku, what doesn't need to be said? The dude was a wrestling machine. You always had a sense of danger when Haku came to the ring and uh, took on his opponent. I think what really made them was when they turned heel and joined up with Bobby Heenan. It was during an episode of Superstars of Wrestling, mid-87. They were wrestling the Can-Am Connection, Tom Zink and Rick Martell. And there was uh, a, a rumor on that episode that a tag team is going to turn heel and join up with Bobby Heenan. But then we found out it was Haku and Tama. And I think that really elevated their game. The fans cared about them more, especially going into 1988 when they stole Matilda, the British Bulldogs uh, mascot. And man, 
Tama. I don't know what happened to that guy. I know he went to a WCW, a part of the Samoan SWAT team and stuff, but like his days as the Tonga kid and Tama, this dude was incredible. That dude could get some like high hang on that flying splash. It was more exciting to watch than Jimmy Snuka's splash. Let me tell you that much. I agree with you. I had them at number nine. They could have been higher. Um, I, I We want to talk about underrated tag teams, the Islanders in 1987. And yeah, the heel feud seemed to really energize them, especially Tama. And I saw a match in Boston in 1987. It was the Islanders against the team that I'll, be, I'll soon be talking about, Strike Force, Rick Martell and, and Tito Santana. And it was one of the best WWF matches I'd ever seen at the Boston Garden. It was just electric. Everyone was on it on this night. This is what I heard in 1987, okay? If I heard this in 2022, I might not believe it. But I heard this as soon as Tom Zank quit the WWF. Why did he quit? Zank never said this, so maybe it's not true. But supposedly the Islanders took a disliking to Tom Zank for whatever reason, a hum, and they just started beating the crap out of him every night. When I say every night, we're talking you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then twice on Saturday and sometimes twice on Sunday, and Zenk decided, decided he'd had enough. So I know the reason why he left the WWF. At least he said it in shoot interviews. So back in the early 2000s, Zink came out of nowhere and started doing shoot interviews on Dave Meltzer's Iyata show. And then I remember this. He did- and then he did some on live audio wrestling with Jeff Merrick, who's now on Hockey Night in Canada. In Canada, he was a uh, wrestling radio talk show host. It was called The Law. Uh, John Pollock was a co-host on there as well, and Dan the Mouth Lavransky. And Zink made so many appearances on these shows. There's like he must have done like between Meltzer and live audio wrestling, probably a dozen shoot interviews. And he said the reason why he left the WWF was because. He found out Rick Martell was making more money to him and lie and Martell lied to him about making more money. And he started doing he, Tom Zink should have been a stand up comedian because he started doing impressions of Martell and his French Canadian accent. He started doing Dusty Rhodes, Jesse Ventura. Zink was hilarious. He was bitter, but hilarious. But he would vent his spleen about Rick Martell screwing him over. And then he just left one night and. Now that I look back on it, like you've probably seen shoot interviews a billion times and people talk about Rick Martell and the dude, nobody talks crap about Rick Martell. Like he is probably one of the most liked people in the wrestling business. Tom Zink was not. So now with hindsight 2020, I guess it was probably Zink's immaturity that led to the breakup of the Can-Am. He should have just like, they they were going to give him the tag team titles for Christ's sakes. Like, you would probably make more money, Tom, if you would have stayed in the Can-Am connection. And and so what if Martel's making more money? The dude was an AWA champion. He had been in the business like 13 years before you. He was a huge star in some places, including Montreal, Portland. Uh, you know, he had done it all. Rick Martel deserved that. And, you know, it just seemed like Zink was spitting sour grapes, man. Couple of things. Number one, I've been around Tom Zank, and he was a funny, funny guy. I mean, he would just show up and start bitching about his girlfriend or whatever. He he was a riot, and we did a whole show maybe three years ago on Tom Zank. Make me the Booker and give me Tom Zank. I'm going to make you a million dollars. Okay. Number one, I am in complete agree with, agreement with you 
as far as his split with Rick Martel, I remember listening to it in 99 or 2000 when he was on Wrestling Observer Live talking about, um, you know, he wasn't making as much money as Rick Martel. And I, I feel the same way you do, Jake, that, hey, you were a not even mid-card guy in the AWA a year ago, and Tom Zank was the AWA champion and one of the bigger stars in wrestling. You know, yeah, you're Robin and he's Batman. Sorry, pal. Dude, he would have eventually gotten to bigger heights had he stayed with Martel, and maybe there would have been a split down the road. But, you know, the Can-Am Connection were a really good tag team, but Strike Force, I think, was a lot better. You replace Zinc with Tito Santana? Come on. I mean, Santana is amazing. Like, I've I, Tito Santana is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Very underrated. I never hear people talk about how great Tito was, but every match I basically saw with Tito Santana was a pretty darn good match. Like, I would think that Tito, if you go back, like, he was probably 10 years too late. Like, if he would have, like, started out in the early 70s because the Funks trade him and all that stuff, he would have, I don't think, I don't know if he'd be NWA champion, but Tito would have been a strong contender for Harley Race or Terry Funk or ja even Jack Briscoe. Like, Tito Santana was amazing, probably from the start of his career to the and El Matador was not a very good gimmick, but Tito always gave 100% in the ring. Would you agree or disagree? I, I totally agree. And I remember when they gave him the El Matador gimmick, it's like, you know, he was the last babyface to not get a gimmick. He was just Tito Santana, and one day... He's El Matador, and it's like, all right, this is the way wrestling is now. What are you going to do? But yeah, I mean, I mean, Zank over Santana, should be Santana over Zank. Zank may have had more physical charisma, but Tito was an established star. And, you know, and, and another way to look at the Zank leaving the WWF, by the way, Zank said, oh, I was making less money than Rick Martel. What's he going to do? Come out and say, yeah, these guys are kicking my ass every night. And, I couldn't stick up for myself. He's not going to say that. So I kind of believe the story I heard in 87. And, you know, Zank, whatever. I mean, he could have had a way bigger career. And, I mean, like you said, okay, Tom, but at, at the end of the day, are you making more more money in the WWF, albeit getting less money than Rick Martel? Or are you are you making more money with the AWA, What you know, where he went back to, than he was in the WWF? It was a a bad decision. They were getting the tag team titles. They could have, you know, turned Zank heel at some point. I mean, then again, I'm not the one getting my butt kicked every night by those two. So what can I say? Tom Zink was his own worst enemy that I've come to realize. Like they, he, he even said in those interviews, he was a locker room lawyer. Like nobody, I mean, a few people like Tom Zink, but the bookers obviously didn't because they kept him in the lower mid card. I think the perfect thing for Zink as a babyface was the world television championship. Like he was the world TV champion, I think, in like 91 or something. Yeah. And you're right. Like he would have been a good Rick Rude heel managed by Paulie Dangerously. I think that they could have gotten some mileage. He could have been in the Dangerous Alliance had he not been so shoved down the card as a white meat baby face. I think they could have done something with him in the Dangerous Alliance because he had some Rick Rude, uh, pretty boy uh, uh, charisma there. And, and I think the fans could have booed him easily. I, I think, you know, as someone, once again, I've, I've been around Tom Zank. I mean, it, it's such a mistake 
to leave him in the babyface role, but WCW didn't understand wrestling. The, the corporate people didn't understand wrestling fans. Uh, they look at Tom Zankwell. He's a really good-looking guy. I mean, we're talking GQ looks, and he's a former Mr. Minnesota bodybuilding champion, you know, and he's athletic, so here's how you use this guy. Well, once again, they didn't understand wrestling fans, but Jake, who was your number eight? I got to go with uh, the Killer Bees, Jumpin' Jim Brunzel and uh, B. Brian Blair. This team always had great matches, like especially with the Heart Foundation. It was like magic. It was like poetry in motion. Jim Brunzel, I mean, the guy was incredible in the 70s and early 80s with Greg Gagne. I know people crap on Greg Gagne all the time, but Greg Gagne was a really good talent. Like, he was very, very good. The High Flyers were one of the best tag teams of the 1970s, in my opinion. And Brian Blair was really, really good in Florida. I saw a match a couple months ago with him and Rick Rude, I think, for the Florida Championship. And Blair just worked like a toehold or something on him. The whole, and it was actually a really good match. Brian Blair was a good old-school wrestler. I saw some of his matches in 84 in the WWF against Paul Orndorff. Brian Blair was... He was pretty solid. So when you put those two together, they make for an interesting tag team combination. I would have not been opposed to putting the tag team titles on the Killer Bees, but there were so many, like the Bulldogs were there, the Hart Foundation were there. Then you add in Strike Force and Demolition. They kind of got lost in the shuffle. And it's unfortunate because both those guys could work. The fans got behind. I saw a match from, I think it was like late 86, early 87 on Superstars where they took on Sheik and Volkov. And granted, Sheik and Volkov are not the greatest tag team. I get it. But the fans were just so into that match. Like they put on those, when they did that heel gimmick where they put the mask on in the middle of the match and switch places. and all, That was genius. Like, I think they could have done more with the Killer Bees, like w- like sell the masks at the arenas, because I was a big fan of them. How about you, John? I I did not have them listed in my top ten, but I certainly had them considered. Um, once again, you took the words out of my mouth that that uh, Brian Blair Paul Orndorff nineteen eighty four match with St. Louis was outstanding. Uh, Blair was a great athlete. I think he is a guy who was probably ten years too late because he would have been, I think, a big star in the 70s but when wrestling became a little bit more cartoonish in the 80s he just didn't fit in but i didn't have them ranked but i definitely had them considered you know they they were an excellent tag team i would never i would not have i i don't see a point where i would have made them the wwf tag team champions because they were always uh, a better option in my opinion but they they were a a better than solid tag team. It's you know it's one of those things where you want to get them in the top ten, but I've only got ten spots. Yeah, and I promise everybody, I do have some NWA tag teams in here. It's not all WWF centric, so I apologize for that. I haven't named a WWF uh, an NWA tag team either. Uh, one team that I wanted so badly to shoehorn in here. They were a really good tag team was Sting and Rick Steiner, and I would have, except they split them up in the summer, and I've once again, I've only got 10 spots. But anyway, my number eight, and Jay, I'll bet, for whatever reason, I bet you don't have these guys on here, and I'll explain why I have them. They were two major single stars in Memphis. 
they had feuded in 1985 and 1986, a blood feud between these two. And then Bill Dundee comes back as a babyface, but there's still tension with his tag team partner, Jerry Lawler. And I had them number eight on the list. They won the AWA Tag Team Championship. Finally, a Memphis team wins a world title or someone from Memphis wins a world title. I thought they were great in the ring together. And again, you had that dynamic where it's the two top stars, two legends by 1987 in the Memphis area. Absolutely. And you know what's funny about Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler is they've they've feuded with each other a trillion times and it never got old. Like I go back and watch some of their matches like 83 Lawler beats Dundee. Dundee leaves town. That was an excellent match. 85 uh, Dundee turns heel and uh, Lawler almost smashes his car with the baseball bat. And Lance Russell's telling Jerry to stop, stop. That is good stuff. Like, usually the best enemies great make great tag team partners. Like, um, they were good in the AWA. It's unfortunate their title reign didn't last that long. I think they lost to, what, the uh, Old Midnight Express, Dennis Condry, and Randy Rose. But, man... Dundee was great. He had a lot of charisma. He could have a great match just by punching as well as Lawler. I I can't disagree with you, John Dundee and Lawler were a great team and even probably better rivals. They were. And if we ever have a show about the top feuds, maybe even in wrestling history, I can tell you that uh, Jerry Lawler and Dutch Mantel against Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell from late 85, early 86, would be in my top five, no questions asked. I mean, Dundee, that's the thing, you know, they always say the better the heel, the better the baby face and vice versa. And Bill Dundee and really Jerry Lawler as well were, I mean, prime examples of that. Yeah, there's some guys that shouldn't be heels and some that shouldn't be baby faces, but Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee knew how to work a crowd both sides. And so I compare them to like a hockey defenseman in the NHL, like a two-way defenseman like Ray Bork or Paul Coffey or Bobby Orr, guys that can play both ends of the ice. And that was Jerry Lawler. He could make you so mad as a heel, but then he becomes the kick-ass baby face and you just want him to take on the world. Dundee is the same way. They are the perfect example of wrestling two-way defensemen. I remember Jerry Lawler turning heel in 1989, and I, I absolutely could not believe it. I thought he was one of those guys, like a Bruno Sammartino type, that you just can't turn heel. But they turned him, and it worked, and it, it refreshed his character, and it was great television. But, Jake, who do you have as your number 17 tag team from 1987? By the way, let me throw this into: We are just using uh, U.S.-based promotions uh, or U.S. and Canada-based promotions, so we're not going to do any teams from Japan. If we did, I'd have a bunch of them, but that's kind of not the STW audience. So you're number seven, sir. I'm sorry that um, I like Japanese wrestling and all, and I have a few favorites like Mitsuharu Misawa and uh, uh, Jumbo Saruta. Like, I love uh, early 90s All Japan, but I I couldn't talk for an hour about Japanese wrestling. I'm sorry. Like That's um, okay. But, you know, I'm sorry. I I do like it, though, what I've seen of it. Some of the New Japan stuff I really enjoyed. But, you know, this team wasn't together that much in 87. They were in the same group, but they didn't become the NWA Tag Team Champions until late 
1988 and 1989 were kind of their year was Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. You talk about uh, putting together the best of the best. Arn could wrestle. Arn could talk. Tully the same way. They just made for an interesting tag team combination. And the funny thing is, like, maybe during their pay-per-view matches or something like that, they would maybe cheat once in a while. But if you watch, like, old world championship wrestling from 87 and 88, like, they didn't have to cheat. Like, they were heels that pretty much wrestled a clean match. I had Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard as my number one. <laughs> so I, I thought and I even took into consideration that they didn't regularly tag team until right around the middle of the summer when Lex Luger won the U.S. title. That's how good they were. That's how over they were. It's almost like, OK, you know, you've got Tully Blanchard, who was just coming off uh, range with the United States title and the TV title. And you accept him as a top guy. And then you've got Arn Anderson, the enforcer of the horseman. I went back and forth with uh, with my number one and my number two. But ultimately, in my opinion, they were tag team of the year in 1987. They were so good in the ring and they had that much star power. So I, th- I thought they were phenomenal. Tully and Arn were just two Cadillacs in there, man. Just so smooth. And you could have just I wish you would have seen my face as a kid when I found out they were they came into the WWF. I wasn't a smart fan. I was only seven years old at the time, but I was obsessed with wrestling. Like, of course, I started watching WWF in like late 85. And slowly when I go to my grandma's house, I'd watch World Championship Wrestling. And I really got into NWA WCW in 1988. And to see them just go to the WWF and have Bobby Heenan as their manager, John, you probably were reading the observer at the time. You probably knew it was happening, but I was just like, Whoa, you know what I mean? Like it was one of those moments. Like, did this just happen? You know what I mean? And they, they did really well in the WWF. I mean, they put them over demolition for the tag team titles. They didn't last there that long, but just the, just the thought of Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson, the NWA's top tag team, going to the WWF, that was a real um, – that really probably downed morale for the NWA. And that probably made Dusty Rhodes look really, really bad. And then they had Barry Windham go into the – that's another story for another day. But by 1989, they had most of the horsemen, even J.J. Dillon in the WWF. And Ric Flair had agreed and then rescinded to come into the WWF in 1988. He was originally going to be the guest at SummerSlam. I got a call the Sunday after Tully and Arn lost the tag team titles to the Midnight Express in Philadelphia. I got a phone call and someone says, you know, first told me about the title switch, which took me aback because it wasn't time to switch the titles yet. And then he's like, oh, yeah, and they're leaving for the WWF. And I was stunned. And part of me, and a lot of people aren't going to like this, part of me thinks they did the NWA a favor by leaving because they were a little bit stale. They'd been around for four years, and it was time for a change at the top. But at the at the same time, when they leave the the NWA as two of the four horsemen, so two of the top guys, in the in the in the profession in the NWA, and then they wind up in the WWF as as just another tag team. I thought it made the NWA look weak, and I think 
that if I'm Vince McMahon, I'm doing that all day long. So the biggest surprise to me, even as a kid, I knew Art Anderson was something special and I knew he was a great talker. When they went to the WWF, it's like they couldn't cut a promo like Bobby Heenan did all the talking for him. And Bobby Heenan is one of the most entertaining uh, wrestling personalities uh, in the history of Western civilization. But it was just weird. I don't know if you felt the same way, John, that Arn Anderson was kind of just in the background, not talking that much. And Tully was the same. Tully was a really good talker. Tully, Tully could get under anybody's skin. Like you could tell he was, and I don't know if he's like that in real life, but he, he just came up. He, <laughs> he came across as like a world-class prick back then. You know what I mean? Tully was something else. <laughs> I mean, I liked the guy, but he was something else. Um, I, I mean, yeah, they, you know, like I said, they, I, you know, Arn, Arn is what he appears to be on TV, basically, and so is Tully. And yeah, they did not get much talking time in the WWF, which is kind of sad. It is, but I mean, Bobby Heenan, I mean, when you're next to Bobby Heenan, just let the man talk because I could hear, I, I could listen to Bobby Heenan talk about like read Moby Dick on audiobook and it'd be hilarious. It definitely would be. And yeah, they were people uh, in 89 who, when Barry Windham got there and okay, you've got JJ Dillon, Barry Windham, Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. And people are like, Oh, the WWF should do the horseman. And I'm like, Vince McMahon is never doing that. He did it eventually, of course, but he, or, or did he, I don't even know. Well, no, he didn't actually, but he, I was like, you know, in 1989, like get it through your head. Vince McMahon is not doing the four horsemen, but, Anyway, my number seven, and this is how good the tag team scene was in 1987. I got to put these guys at number seven. Uh, the Hart Foundation, Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart, were still a top heel tag team. They had the, the WWF tag team titles for part of the year. Actually, I think most of the year. And they were, were an outstanding team. They were getting a little bit stale by this point. They had been together for... I mean, since the beginning of 1985, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they were uh, an excellent in-ring team and Jimmy Hart added to the package. 1987 was kind of the year of Jimmy Hart, man. He led the Hart Foundation to the Tag Team Championship, and he led Honky Tonk Man to a big upset of Ricky the Dragon's steamboat. Um, Hart Foundation were great. Like, Bret Hart, as I said on the last uh, podcast I was on with you, I'm a Bret Hart loyalist. He's my favorite wrestler of all time. And I I knew as a kid, like watching him, that he was something special. Like Jim Neidhart was good. He was a, I, some people say he wasn't that great in the ring. I think he was a good tag team wrestler. I think he added to the package with his pers personality, his goatee, his power moves. But Bret was the star of the team, no question about it. Um, they were doing that angle with Danny Davis where Danny was the heel referee. And my dad, Danny Davis did a really good job as the heel referee. I hated that guy. Like he cost some people some matches. Um, but I was such a British Bulldogs fan back then. I loved him. I didn't know the reason why they dropped the title. I wasn't smart yet. I didn't know dynamite kid was just so hurt so bad. He was in the hospital, like, like what days or weeks before they dropped the tag team titles. But it was a shock watching that on TV that the Bulldogs got beat in like three minutes. And it was almost like a squash match, man. Davey Boy Smith just like got Pearl Harbored by Neidhart and Hart. And 
Hart Foundation, man, the fans hated him. And every match I saw with the Hart Foundation, whether it be with the Rougeau brothers or the Killer Bees or the British Bulldogs, they always put on a great match. Quality was always Bret Hart's uh, calling card. Like, he would not be satisfied unless he had a great match. He had a really good match on Saturday night's main event in late 87, early 88, when he fought Randy Savage. That would, if you've never seen that match, it is really good. I was always hoping that, like in the '90s, Savage would turn heel before he went to WCW and feud with Bret, but that never happened. But if you've never seen that Bret Hart Randy Savage match, go out of your way to see it. It's a really good one. Before I got quote unquote smart to the business, you know, just newsletter smart, I saw a Bret Hart versus Ricky Steamboat match in Boston, and it absolutely blew me away. I wasn't ready for it. I didn't think, you know, I knew how good Ricky Steamboat was in the ring because I saw some of his matches with with Ric Flair, but this just random match that they threw out there and these guys just lit it up. I was lucky enough to have been there live. I've, I've always seen Bret Hart as very charismatic, even when he was in the Hart foundation and he didn't do a lot of talking and they had, he had to wear sunglasses because he was so scared on camera, at least at first. And I saw something in the guy early. So we, we have that in common, Jake. So, Okay, I don't know if you've seen the match, but a few months ago, I finally went on Peacock and watched the special on Bret Hart versus Tom McGee. And I have to agree, he made Tom Tom McGee look like a million dollars. I've seen some Tom McGee matches after that, and they were not really nothing to uh, write home about. I I think Tom McGee had some potential, but, you know, he he just wasn't, I I don't think he grasped wrestling. But Bret Hart made him look like the greatest professional wrestler out there. He took some mad bumps for this guy. When they say Ric Flair could have a match with a broomstick, I think the same could be attested to Bret Hart. He could have a good match with anybody. They had they had a, a good match on TV against the Young Stallions, Paul Roma and Jim Powers, that was really good. They made the Young Stallions look like went from jobbers to legitimate contenders. And I think, I think that speaks volumes to how good Bret Hart was. And Jim Neidhart is kind of underrated. Like I know in the later part of his career, he wasn't that good in the ring, but you know, during his early times, even in stampede, he had a little bit of potential, you know, he was a good power wrestler. Yeah. You know, Jim Neidhart was looked at, uh, I mean, the WWF brought him in, in 1985, as a singles guy with Mr. Fuji as his manager and Neidhart was considered in the wrestling business to be a, you know, a a potential superstar. It, it, It happened for him, but just not the way we thought it was going to happen for him. But I mean, I, I mean, I saw Bret Hart's charisma right from the get go. I see this guy with his hair slicked back and the glasses. I'm like, wow, this, this dude's cool. I like him. But anyway, Jake, who was your number six? I got to go with uh, the Rock and Roll Express. Um, They had a pretty good 1987. It wasn't as good as their Mid-South and early NWA days, but they held the belt for a couple of months. I mean, uh, I thought it was weird, though, that that Crockett did that thing, that phantom finish. I guess it was because Rick Rick Rude kind of defected to the WWF. But uh, the Rock and Roll Express were solid. It was one of their last great years as a tag team. I actually got to meet them a month ago at an indie show here in Florida. And Ricky Morton 
is I don't know if he's just good at schmoozing or whatever, but he was such a nice guy. And his son, Kerry Morton, uh, who he teamed up with in that Ric Flair's last match, he was super awesome as well. And Robert Gibson was nice, but he's kind of shot. I think he's kind of quiet. Like, but Ricky Morton just treated everyone like they were just, you know, buddies of his. It was great. And, you know, it's sad to see the Rock and Roll Express finally hang it up. But, you know, I, I know when I saw Robert Gibson in the ring, he wasn't moving around too well. Ricky could still move around a little bit. But uh, 1987 was probably one of their last great years as a tag team. They did some stuff in Smoky Mountain that was really good. But on a national level, this was probably uh, their their uh, going away party. What do you think? I had the Rock and Roll Express at number four. Um, I agree with you that they weren't what they were in 1986. They had cooled off a lot, but they were still an excellent in-ring tag team. You know, if, if you had just started watching wrestling in 1987, you'd be like, oh, wow, man, that these guys are good. My uh, experiences with Ricky Morton were a little bit different. I, you know, I, I first saw him in like 87, you know, checking into the hotel and he, he did not have time for anyone. He's like, no, sorry, guys, got to go. And I, I, under, I understand that. Like, look, you're doing this every single day. You know, you're traveling. You, you don't want to be hanging out with fans. You want to get relaxed. And, you know, you just got off the plane and you've had enough. But then. Uh, again, uh, Smoky Mountain Fan Week in 1994, Ricky Morton didn't want to have nothing to do with nobody. It was hilarious. Oh, Tracy no. Smothers actually came up and apologized for his behavior. But I, I don't care. But, uh, yeah, they were great in the ring. They're my number four. Uh, my top four tag teams are all NWA tag teams, and they're the first one. But, uh and yeah, they did. They really did have some great matches in Smoky Mountain. I remember hearing about, you know, oh, Jim Cornette starting Smoky Mountain Wrestling and the, the Rock and Roll Express are going to be his top attraction. I was like, oh, my God, those two are acid washed. Jim, what are you thinking? Oh, Jim was thinking that he knew what he was doing because he was familiar with that audience and they got over like crazy. And, you know, good for them. I mean, it looked like the Rock and Roll Express were done, but they had a few excellent years left. All right, Jake, who's your number five? Uh, well, I got to go with uh, Rick Martell and any partner, pretty much. <laughs> I went with Rick Martell and Tito Santana as my number five tag team. So we're on the same list. The Can-Ams were great. Like, I was a fan of theirs when they came into the WWF. Uh, they had that match with Morocco and Orton at WrestleMania three. It was a nice little match. It wasn't the greatest match, but it was, it was put together. Nice. They had a, it was a good opener. Yeah. And then they had a match with Sheik and Volkoff on Saturday night's main event. The fans were really into the Can-Am connection. It's a shame. Tom Zink, like I said, uh, just, you know, for whatever flaked reason out. flaked out. Yeah. I, I don't want to say that cause he's no longer with us, but it's true. Um, but Tito Santana joining the team, it, it made it a lot better. And when they beat the Hearts for the tag team title, the crowd went nuts. Like, Tito Santana, like, they were trying to figure out, like, a way to use him because he had kind of, in 1987, he was still a good wrestler, but he was kind of in the mid card. He was uh, just doing, like, TV matches on TV. Didn't really have a feud other than with Danny Davis. That didn't, that didn't really pique my interest that much, but when they teamed him up with Rick Martell, 
It was incredible. And if you guys want to see a really good tag team match from the early 80s, go on YouTube and watch Rick Martel and Tito Santana having a babyface match with Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel for the AWA Tag Team Championship. They didn't use Martel and Santana enough as a tag team in the AWA. They would have been great AWA Tag Team Champions, but I'm glad I got to see them pair up together. And Rick Martel, I think, is a guy that a lot of people, not you and me as older wrestling fans, we still know how great Rick Martel is, but I think he's gotten lost in time because he doesn't really have anything to do with the wrestling business anymore. His last matches, I think, were in 98 WCW. So I think the younger fans just don't realize how great this guy is. I think if Martel was still around today, he could fit in today's generation because the guy had a lot of athleticism. I mean, he could do great drop kicks. He could do some great flying maneuvers. He was a great technical wrestler. I think Martel could like Bobby, like I heard Dave Meltzer once say Bobby Eaton could wrestle with the AEW Crowder in today's wrestling landscape. I think the same could be true about Rick Martel. I think he was kind of ahead of his time. He was also a very good looking man. He looked like Sylvester Stallone. I think that just what was missing was the promo ability. What do you think, John? I agree that his promos held him back. I mean, and I feel for him. I mean, English was his second language or is his second language. So I get yeah. that. Here's what I think of Strike Force. okay? You had the Can-Am connection come in. Now, Zank had never been in the WWF before. Martel had been in the WWF in 1980 and 1981, but by fall of 1986, you know, I, w- I would bet 90% of the WWF audience had never heard of him, uh, didn't know he had been in the WWF previously. So when Zank left and Santana took his place, now you've got a guy, Tom- Tito Santana, who the fans know is a star. And like you said, he really didn't have a role in 1987. You know, he he was kind of drifting, frankly, from the time he lost the Intercontinental Championship to Randy Savage and got done with the rematches. I mean, he was you know, kind of in a just another guy role. And it was just a happy coincidence for Tito Santana. And I think I think Strike Force, quite frankly, went further than the Can-Ams were ever going to go. I mean, the Can-Ams would have been fine as the WWF's version of the Rock and Roll Express, a tag team for the girls. But Tito Santana added star power to that team. You know what's a shame is, okay, so they faced Tully and R at WrestleMania Five. It was an okay match. Uh, Tito took a butt kicking in that one for sure. He was a great, like, getting his butt kicked type guy. Uh, they, they set up the whole Rick Martel turning heel thing. But I think if they would have just had a straight match, like a, a 10 or 15 minute match, it would have tore the house down. But unfortunately, they were setting up Martel turning heel. That was great. I think Martel was very underrated as a heel. Maybe if he was a heel in 1984 or 85 as AWA champion, like the arrogant, not call him the model per se, but just the arrogant Rick Martel, he would have been probably a wrestling observer he would probably would have driv- drawn more money and maybe he would have been considered for the wrestling observer hall of fame do, do you think rick is a wrestling observer hall of famer i think he's borderline i think he's borderline and if you're borderline to me the the answer is going to be no i think he's that next shelf down like oh he was really good but he's just not a hall of fame level 
I remember watching WrestleMania five, whichever it was. Yeah. WrestleMania five and just not believing what I was seeing. Like Rick Martell, as far as I know, had never been a heel. And he was someone I couldn't picture as a heel. And whenever those words came out of my mouth and you see the guy as a heel for the first time, it works. It, it worked with Barry Windham. It worked with Rick Martell. You know, guys that I could just never imagine. Well, here they are, and they're great. Larry Zabisco, same thing. Rick Martell was an excellent babyface, but man, was he a heel. When Look, the model gimmick got a little too cartoony, but when he, as a kid, and I saw him spray Jake Roberts in the face with arrogance, I was like, that treacherous bastard just sprayed Jake the Snake in the face. I wanted him to get the DDT like 20 times in a row. That's how good Martell was. It, it, it was like he was born to be a heel. You know, it, it just dawned on me because I didn't know about this or I hadn't seen this. When Rick Martell turned heel in 1989, Rick Martell had defended the AWA championship against Jerry Lawler in Memphis. I want to say summer 1985. This just jumped into my head. And Martell was fantastic as a heel. He was doing that, like, dancing around the ring thing, at, you know, yeah. the way he does as a baby face. Except, like, the fans hated it in Memphis. Like, what's this guy doing? So if you'd seen that, you knew that Rick Martell, and I, I again, I hadn't seen it yet, but you knew he had the potential and he could go through with it. Anyway, did I, Jake, I'm losing track. Did I ask for your ninth, your number four yet? No, but I could give you somebody. Oh, yeah, yes, please. The Rock and Roll Express were my number four. Who's your number four? I got to go with the Road Warriors. Okay, so the Road Warriors, they were, I, I, I was like in 1987, I was like, when are these guys going to win the NWA tag team title? I mean, they won the AWA tag team championship pretty quickly. In in pretty quick fashion in '84, and but then I realized, you know, this team really doesn't need the NWA Tag Team Championship. They're kind of like Rowdy Roddy Piper. They don't need a title per se. Rowdy Roddy Piper never needed the WWF Championship. He he got on. He he got over because he was the most dastardly heel, but hilarious heel. He's one of the funniest wrestlers ever. Uh, the Road Warriors were just. Smash Mouth, like Jim Ross once said, Smash Mouth football. The fans, that's what I was kind of like confused with. In 88, they turned the Road Warriors heel there for a bit. That was the dumbest thing you could possibly do. The fans never wanted to boo the Road Warriors. I didn't want to see the Road Warriors as heels. That time had come and gone. So the Road Warriors in 87, they had some great feud. With uh, Tully and Arn, uh, had some good matches with them. Uh, the War Games, I think, with Dusty and Nikita were great. But the Road Warriors were a team that uh, their title was they come to the ring in face paint with those awesome shoulder pads, and they beat the bejesus out of their opponent. Like, you don't need anything else. Like, they're, they're just fine as young crown tag team champions. I had the Road Warriors at number. I have the Road Warriors at number three. Uh, were they as good in the ring as Strike Force and the Rock and Roll Express? Of course not. Um, but they had that presence, and I agree with you that they. It almost felt like they were above the NWA Tag Team Championships. Like as good as these wrestlers are, 
the tag team titles are usually defended in the middle of the card, and that's not where the Road Warriors were. Just like you know, Roddy Piper could, I see him as WWF champion, yeah, I guess, but could I, in 1984, 1985, see him as intercontinental champion? No, because he's above it. He He's in the main event against Hulk Hogan, whether it be in a singles or a tag team match, uh, headlining WrestleMania. You know, the, the the Intercontinental Championship was like, you know, the third or fourth match down at WrestleMania. So I saw them in the same light. They just didn't need the championships. They were, uh, you know, they, they were above it. And they had so much star power. I think they kind of made a mistake not putting the titles on them at Starcade 87, but at the same time, I get it. They're, they've made it clear to you they're not doing a job, so that's a reason not to put the titles on them. But I have them one ranking above you, which kind of means that I think, one Jake, one of your top three is going to be a team I do not have ranked. But who was your number three? So I got to go with this team, and I don't... They didn't have the most sensational 1987, but I, I'm, I'm looking at it with rose-colored glasses. I still love the British Bulldogs. I still think that they could put on a good match anytime. They weren't the WWF Tag Team Champions. Dynamite was hurt, but I saw some matches they did with the Hart Foundation in 87 that were just terrific. Davey Boy Smith was a star in the making. Like, when he came back to the company in 19... 19- was it like 1991 or late 1990? Like, I I wasn't surprised. Like, it's sad how Dynamite Kid kind of fell off a cliff a little bit. But the fans were still into the British Bulldogs. It wasn't like the fans stopped caring about them. It's just I don't know if Vince, like, had him in the plans to win the tag team titles back or anything because maybe, uh, unfortunately, he didn't trust Dynamite's health. What, what do you think with the Bulldogs? Well, I, look, sometimes as a joke, I'll make a top 10 and someone will say, what about X, Y, Z? And I'll say, no, nah, they're number 11. I'll say it about like 50 different people. I don't care. That's my joke. The Bulldogs, I literally had at number 11 and I had them. I switched them in demolition a couple of times. I mean, it was hard leaving them off. They weren't what they were in 1986. As a matter of fact, in 86, they weren't what they were in 1985. But we were looking at this in a vacuum, and they were still a very good tag team. Uh, I think it was the, it, you know, they did take a step back, and they did take some time off. We had a lot of Davy Boy Smith and Junkyard Dog or whoever in there. So that was the, the difference for me. But, I mean, they were still an excellent team, and I, I wanted to list them in the top ten. I just didn't have enough spots. That's the thing about tag team wrestling in 1987, man. Like, there was so many great tag teams. I don't know why uh, Vince McMahon just stopped like putting together good tag team combinations. Like it kind of had a resurgence in the early two thousands with Edge and Christian and the Hardys and the Dudley Boys, but it just seemed to me like after a while Vince just stopped caring about tag teams and WCW too. I mean, they had some really good tag teams there as well. The problem is, like, I don't think Bischoff liked tag team wrestling, and I don't think after a while Vince saw it. Like, he liked the good singles match. He was more interested in individual stars. I think tag team wrestling 
should be more focused on today, given the level of athlete that's out there. I think AEW has some good tag teams. WWF has, or WWE has some good tag teams too, but we were spoiled, John, as a kid, like as kids or teenagers growing up in the eighties, like, like I said before, the WWF had like, God, it seemed like a dozen tag teams that could be in contention for the tag team title. NWA had some really good quality tag teams, uh, we'll get to one of those in just a minute, but is it fair to say that you and I, as wrestling fans, were spoiled in 1987, 88, and 89 by all these great tag team combinations? No, it's it's totally fair to say it was, you know, I, again, probably the greatest era of tag team wrestling ever. But here's the thing, right? In the 80s, starting in 1984, Vince McMahon was just sucking up all the talent he could get his hands on, and he figured out what he was going to do with these guys later. Well, you know, okay, I've got Jim Brunzel over here. I've got Brian Blair over here. I'll put them in. The, they're Both their names begin with B. Light bulb goes on. They put him in a tag team. And, you know, Jim Brunzel, he's not going to be WWF champion. Neither is Brian Blair. No offense to either guy. They, but, you know, they know I'm right. As the wrestling business began to kind of evolve, I know a lot of the wrestlers didn't want to be part of a tag team because that's not where the big money is. And a lot of the time, you know, you put a guy in a tag team where it's like, okay, I'm going to use this tag, put him in a tag team for now, but I'm using this to elevate him as a single star later on. And, the, you know, the wrestling kind of started getting away from that. Everyone wanted to be the top guy in their promotion, whatever that promotion was. They they just weren't happy with tag team money. And that's I think that's one reason they kind of got away from it. Another reason is a lot of the new teams just, you know, that the Vince put out there just didn't get over. And it felt like you know, when to me, when that era ended. Uh, you know what? Be- even better example, uh, Shawn Michaels couldn't wait to get out of that tag team because he thought he, you know, his shoes had out his feet, excuse me, had outgrown those shoes. So I think I think that's what happened more than anything, that Vince had already acquired all of the 80s talent that he was going to acquire. And there was just no more of a need for like, OK, what am I going to do with this guy and that guy? Yeah, I agree. And. But the thing is, like, you go to house shows and stuff like that, and usually the most exciting match on the card in many ways is a tag team match because there's nonstop yes. action. Uh, and when the good heel tag team cheats, the fans get behind them. The comebacks are incredible. You should have went to that Rock and Roll Express match. I think they took on Wes Briscoe and another partner here. I can't remember who it was, but... Even though Robert Gibson really couldn't move on anymore, unfortunately, the fans were just into the Rock and Roll Express. Like everything they did, they popped for. It was incredible. And every time I go to a house show and stuff like that, usually when there's a tag team match, that's the one that gets the loudest pop of the night. I wish that was still like prevalent, but of course, I'm not a billionaire, so I I can't make those decisions. I just know from personal experience as a wrestling fan that tag team wrestling is one of my favorite parts of a card. Jake, you're not a billionaire yet. You forgot that word. Yes. Right. Thank you. Thank you for the motivation. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm interested. I, I know, I think I know who your number one is. Oh, wait, you told me who your number one is. Ah, so I think I know who is your number two. Oh God. That's a tough one, man. That's a tough one. 
<sighs> Number two. You know who was a really good tag team? Can I can I mention an honorable mention? Of course. Chris Adams and Terry Taylor. Like, that was a good tag team. Like, I know they were in the dying days of the UWF, but they had some really good matches. And then afterwards, they had a really good feud with each other. I think Terry Taylor, unfortunately, gets typecasted as the Red Rooster, but... That was just the start of Terry Taylor becoming a good heel wrestler. And Chris Adams, people forget about Chris Adams. He was an unbelievable wrestler. Like, would he have made the WWF? I don't know. But from like 1982 to 1987, Chris Adams was a heck of a talent. I have a 1987 Chris Adams story for you. There was a time where it looked like uh, Jim Neidhart might have been going to jail and right. you know serving prison time for whatever he was doing and there was talk of Chris Adams coming in you know a as a replacement for uh, Jim Neidhart which off the top of my head makes no sense but that was the word going around or b the replacement for Dynamite Kid in the British Bulldogs but unfortunately for Chris he was stuck in Dallas and none of that ever happened I thought Adams and Taylor were a fantastic tag team. They just weren't uh, together long enough. They turned Terry Taylor heel, I want to say, May or June of 1987. But, you know, yeah, definitely worthy of an honorable mention. My honorable mention is Bruce Hart and Brian Pillman up in Calgary. They were uh, a fantastic tag team. And that just goes to show you how good brian pillman was early in his career because bruce hart was never very good i thought bruce hart was okay i'm a big stampede wrestling fan i i love brett i love owen uh dynamite all those bad news alan um i thought bruce hart was okay like he was a good tag team wrestler brian pillman obviously was the star of the team he's what brought ladies into the arena they had some good matches in 1987 with the karachi vice um And then there was a really good match. I don't know if anybody remembers Kerry Brown. So he was like, I remember Canadian, him. He was good. Kerry Brown was like the Canadian Adrian Adonis. Like he could yes. bounce around the ring. He looked like Adrian kind of. So they did this angle with him and Rip Rogers where they were the midnight Cowboys. They kind of were like, they weren't like, I don't know if they were saying they were gay, but they kind of like were. They let you know. know. Yeah, so they had some good matches against Kerry Brown and Rip Rogers. And I think that's when people in the NWA started looking at Brian Pillman and said, hey, we need to sign this guy because he was a little green in Calgary. But once he got the hang of it, he was one of their best talents. And I wish he would have stayed in Calgary a little longer, but it just didn't work. And, you know, Bruce Hart is what he is. I, I know he had a great mind for the business. That's for sure. But, you know, he was fine as Brian's tag team partner. All right. Well, you know what? It, it, the show would be boring if everyone agreed on everything. I, I, I politely disagree with you on Bruce Hart on a couple of points, but that's not what we're talking about. But, I mean, he did have the Hart name, and Brian Pillman was the green guy just, just breaking into the business. He was the rookie. So the team made sense. I, I totally get it, and I really wanted to get them in, in the top ten, but I couldn't. So. I'll tell you, but Jake, who's your number two? Well, I forgot to put this team in there. Um, 
I think the Fantastics had a pretty good 1987. I think they were in world class for most of that time. I think when you talk about great tag team combinations, the Fantastics kind of get forgotten. Like, they were really good. Like, I never saw a bad Fantastics match. Have you ever seen a bad Fantastics match? I don't think I have. They were an excellent tag team. One of the best matches I've ever seen live were the Fantastics and the Midnight Express uh, at the Boston Garden, April 1988. Like, I, I, I know why they didn't win the NW. Maybe Dusty didn't think they were NWA tag team title uh, material, but man, they had some excellent matches that I think would be carried on today. Like, Bobby Fulton was really good. Tommy Rogers, no one talks about anymore. Unfortunately, he's passed on. He was a really underrated talent. Yeah, the Fantastics, uh, World Class was a was a wasteland in 1987. They were one of the teams that were keeping it going. I had the Fantastics on my list of tag teams that I just couldn't squeeze in there. I think I've done them all now. I've mentioned everyone except the Freebirds, and the Freebirds are just all over the place. Michael Hayes, and, and it was mostly Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts, and I just could not put them in the top 10. I did not rank the Fantastics, even though I thought they were a great tag team. Uh, again, the matches they had against the Midnight Express in both 85 and 88 and 84 were off the charts. But here's the thing. I can't think of one Fantastics match from 1987 that I even remember, except for that stupid scaffold match they had at Texas Stadium. It's just, you know, they were wrestling in such a minor league and by 87 world class, I mean, 87 world class was horrible. And, you know, 86 was fine. 88 was much better. But 87, man, it fell off a cliff. And I, like I said, I just can't think of anything they did in that specific year that I could remember. But, yeah, they're on my list. They just didn't make my top 10. Why did they end up back in world class? Like, because I think they were, I don't want to say I was a world class fan, but like it seemed like. Uh, they were too good for world-class at that time, that they should be in a bigger playing field. Well, they, I mean, they were in the UWF uh, when Bill Watts sold out, and just the NWA was not going to absorb everyone from the UWF, and they were two of the guys that didn't get absorbed. They got stuck in world-class because, you know, they were too small for the WWF. And I hate to say that, but, you know, the WWF, had certain size parameters that these guys didn't even come close to the NWA. They, they the NWA might or Dusty might have thought in 1987 that you know you know a I can't take on everybody, which is understandable, and b these two are they're too similar to the Rock and Roll Express. When the when, after the sale in 1988, I could never figure out why you know almost immediately after the feud. With the Midnight Express, the the Fantastics got forgotten about because they were two quality wrestlers. And even if it's just okay, their third match on the card, we're just filling up the the you know we're just filling up the show. Well, who two better guys to do that with? So that's something I never understood. I was always a a big fan of the Fantastics. I'm very I was very sorry to hear what Tommy Rogers life was like. He was like getting into fights with cops in Hawaii where he lived after his career was over because Tommy Rogers was one of the nicest guys I've ever been around. Same thing with Bobby Fulton. So I don't know, but they, 
I credit them. They were an excellent team. I just, you had to hire a private investigator to find them in 87. Yeah, I started watching World Class around that time. And I know World Class was kind of junk at that time, but it I was really a wrestling. Was. I, I was, I was, I would watch any wrestling. AWA on ESPN, I'd watch that every day, even though AW, I'm a huge AWA fan of like from 1965 to like 1986 AWA, but AWA after 1987, you know, they, AWA still had some good tag teams there. Like you said, Midnight Rockers, Condry and Randy Rose were a good team. Uh, they were AWA tag team champions there for a while. And also it was the emergence of Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond as bad company. That was a really good tag team. Uh, I They had excellent matches with everybody. The more I think about it, I absolutely should have had Condry and Rose with Paulie as their manager, which makes a big difference on my list somewhere. I mean, even if I had to bump demolition, I might have gone with those guys. Condry and Rose, when they came to the NWA, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings here. I, I felt like they they looked kind of minor league compared to the NWA teams. But, I mean, they were an excellent tag team. They just didn't have that physical charisma. All right, Jake, we are actually running late, which is okay. I mean, we're fine having a little bit of a longer show. But who was your number one? My number one was Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. I think I know who your number one is. Midnight Express. They were my number Midnight two. Express. And I went back and forth between the Midnights and Tully and Arn. Okay, so before the Midnight Express won the U.S. Tag Team Championship, the U.S. Tag Team Championship didn't mean a hill of beans. Like, they had, what, Ivan Koloff and Dick Murdoch, great wrestlers in their own right, but it was just like, really? And I think Garvin and Wyndham had the belts. But when the Midnight, when Stan Lane came in the promotion, I... I it was because Condry left to Colorado, right? And didn't tell the team. He just like went AWOL or something like that. I don't know. That's exactly uh, what they, happened. They brought Stan Lane in and Lane had been a tag team specialist with the fabulous ones. I hate to say it. Cause I like Dennis Condry and he was good with uh, Bobby Eaton. He was also good with Randy Rose and he was also good in Memphis with Phil Hickerson back in the 70s. Phil Hickerson is very underrated. Go go look and see if you can find some Phil Hickerson matches. But uh, Stan Lane came in the promotion, and the Midnight Express got better with Stan Lane, I thought. Like, Eaton, you can always expect a great match out of him. Cornette, greatest promo probably at that time, other than Bobby Heenan, maybe. But Stan Lane added another element to the team. He would do those savat kicks or whatever. Those were excellent. He could take some pretty good bumps. He was a good, like when the referee's not looking, he could do some heel tactics. He was arrogant. The midnight express really solidified that uh, United States tag team championship from just who really cares about it to, there were some good teams that held those tag team uh, us tag team titles. You had the midnights held it for a while. Then you had fantastics, that held it for a while. Uh, the Steiners held it for a while. Um, even Tracy Smothers and with Steve Armstrong, the Young Pistols or whatever, that was a pretty good tag team. And I think the Midnight Express is responsible for making the U.S. tag team title mean something and maybe in some ways more important than the uh, World Tag Team title in some ways. What do you think, John? 
Well, I never thought I, I, I never thought it was more important than I always thought it was a step down from the from the world tag team titles. As a matter of fact, um, I remember late '89 they put uh, Brian Pillman together with Tom Zank and had them chasing the U.S. tag team titles. And for me, to me, that felt like a a real demotion for Brian Pillman, and I, I hated seeing that because it really felt like Pillman was about to take off as a single star and instead of throwing him out there with Ric Flair and Sting, which they were doing, and now they're putting him out there with Tom Zank, you know, clearly in a mid card feud. Saying a, a feud is mid card is not spitting on it. It's just, you know, it's reality. You had mentioned, Jake, Dennis Condry's tag teams with various partners. You should see him with Dr. D. David Schultz. Um they were one of the first non-WWF tag teams I ever saw when I first started getting cable, February 1980. And these two were off the charts together. They were doing stuff that I had never dreamed of before. And Jim Cornette has said on Twitter that Schultz and Condry were the best tag, non-Midnight Express tag team he's ever seen. As far as, you know, one of the great wrestling debates is who was the better Midnight Express Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton or Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane. I'll give you that Dennis Condry was a better in-ring worker than Stan Lane, but Stan Lane brought star power and charisma to the Midnight Express. I mean, it was almost like, I don't know who came up with the idea, but the Midnight Express with uh, Eaton and Condry, they wore what they looked like. There were a couple of Southern guys who weren't fancy. Stan Lane comes in. And all of a sudden, you know, the Midnight Express decide that they're going to get matching outfits, matching ring jackets. It all came together and began to look very major league. So I prefer the Stan Lane, Bobby Eaton, Midnight Express to the previous one. So I've heard, I think Jim Cornette said before they considered Stan Lane, they were thinking of Dr. Tom Pritchard is one of the Midnight Express. Like, how would you think that, how would... How do you think that would have went? I, I'm a big fan of Dr. Tom Pritchard. I think he was very entertaining, a good worker and a good talker. Do you think he would have meshed well with Bobby Eaton? I do. I think they would have been a you know a phenomenal tag team. But I think Stan Lane would the, – the, the Stan Lane-Bobby Eaton tag team would have been better than the Bobby Eaton-Tom Pritchard tag team because – Stan just had that certain charisma, that look that got them over the top. My understanding is that Cornette, you know, was kind of pushing for Tom Pritchard as much as you can push a guy like Dusty Rhodes. And Stan Lane was already with the company, but he really didn't have anything to do. He was in Florida teaming with Scott Hall. And then I think Scott Hall took off and, you know, uh, Lane didn't have a role. So he was already an in-house, and it made sense. And at the end of the day, it worked. And Eaton Lane and Cornette all knew each other from Memphis. So it all came together. I'm not shy about it. Cornette, Lane, and Eaton are, you know, Ric Flair's my top favorite wrestler of all time. The next step down is guys like Terry Funk, Jerry Lawler, and that Midnight Express. Dude, the Midnight Express were such a good tag team. Now, granted, Tully and Arn were going to the WWF, but they gave them the ultimate warrior treatment there. They were the U.S. tag team champions, then they put the world tag team champions on them. So, you know, you you can't argue 
with how great of a team they were. I kind of didn't. I mean, I cheered for them when they turned babyface in late 88 and all through 89, but it just wasn't the same. Like It was like they had to be heels. I think the fans appreciated them more when they were heels. They did, and Jim Cornette did really well as a babyface manager. I mean, I can't think of a better babyface manager than Cornette was 88 through the fall of 89, but guess what? Uh, babyface managers, the, the wrestling business was not set up to have those. I mean, you might have well, look Arnold Stoland. Look at look at what happened to Captain Lou Albano, man. Once he tur- he was one of the greatest managers of all time as a heel, and then when he turned babyface, it was like he is horrible. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people remember him as a babyface fondly. Uh, Dynamite Kid was nice enough to say, "Hey, the Bulldogs would have never gotten over." Without Lou Albano, I disagree with him. They were already over without him. And I I, I remember watching in 86 just being like, you know, get this guy out of here. This sucks. And, you know, what, what can I, 80, 85 and 86, it's just not, you know, I, I don't know how else to put it. It's just, it's just an impossible role to get over in. And Cornette did as well as anyone could, but it, it's just not sustainable. Absolutely. Like Cornette had to go back to being a heel. Like they did that thing with the dynamic dudes. Like that was a perfect time to turn the Midnight's back heel. It was like, bravo. Well done. Not the perfect way, though. I mean, I was saying at the time, like, there's no way people are going to cheer the dynamic dudes over the Midnight Express. You're just burying Shane and Johnny. Right. And I feel sorry for Shane and Johnny. Like they did their best out there, but... They had such a lame gimmick, man. Like, those fans in Philadelphia ate them alive. I have said this on this podcast before. I was there for Halloween Havoc 89 in Philadelphia, and television does not do the booing justice. It was so loud and so hateful. And, you know, it's funny because Shane Douglas, as time went on, you know, like him or not dislike him, he showed that he was a real talent. And Johnny Ace, who's been in the news for all of the wrong reasons over the past few weeks, he was good. When he was in Japan in the 90s, I was like, hey, WCW, look at what could be yours. I thought he could have been a big star, but it never happened for him in the, in the United States. Jake, it has been a fantastic like hour and a half now that we've been hanging out talking. Thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Anytime you want me to come on and talk about 80s wrestling, uh, you want to talk about the greatness of Bret Hart or Rick Martel or Tito Santana, I'm down. You got it, man. All right. So I want to thank, I've already thanked Jake. Jake, thanks once again. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, who does so much behind the scenes to make this podcast sound reasonably good. And I will see all of you next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 